Welcome to Sharing Air, the podcast that takes a transdisciplinary look at how we connect, even in isolation. In each episode, we've explored our complex relationship with the essential yet precarious medium of air, as we share stories that bring us together in these times of distance and transformation. And we've been on a bit of a hiatus, but rest assured, we've continued to work on this podcast. As you'll hear today, one of us has recently done some serious, intensely personal research on what has been our ongoing subject, how to understand the impact of the novel coronavirus on ourselves, on our communities, and on the world. And the other of us has been tirelessly practicing her interrupting technique with friends, family, and colleagues so as not to get rusty. I'm Laurie Farrell, the Dean of the School of Arts and Humanities at Claremont Graduate University and the co-host of this podcast. And I am Andy Vasco, the other co-host of this podcast and the Associate Provost and Director of the Transdisciplinary Studies Program at Claremont Graduate University. Welcome. Oh, Andy, it's so good to be back. Before we actually introduce today's guest, who's kind of a special surprise guest, uh, and I kind of hate to give it away quite yet, maybe we could chat first a little bit about recent news. There's vaccines and variants. There's poetry and inaugurations. Where do you want to start? Let's, I mean, we're, we're a COVID-related uh, entity, so let's talk about poetry. <laughs> that sounds great. Um, you know, I was really I, okay. So that that really does allow me to to, to think a bit about and with you about um, the the impact that that uh, Ms. Gorman made at the inaugural. I was surprised, given all the things that were happening, that she was singled out for a special notice and praise. Um, not because she wasn't wonderful, but because there was just so much going on. And um, I sat and thought about it for a while. And in the context of what we talk about, one of the things uh, that I think bears repeating, I think we've discussed this before, poetry is an art of the air, right? It's about timing. It's about the way she took in breath and, and, and pushed out words. And one of the things that I thought was particularly amazing was the choreography of hand and mouth as she spoke at the microphone. Um, and lots and lots of people noticed that. I mean, I've noticed that afterwards, while people talked about how amazing she was and how amazing it was to have poetry at an inauguration and how essential it was to have poetry at an inauguration. Not very many people remembered what she said exactly, but more like how she said it. Um, and I do think that that has to do with the way poetry, you know, uses breath. I, I think that there's something to that, Laurie. And I remembered, so I was one of those people that only watched the, um, the the performance parts of the inauguration so it involved the di the different uh uh singers and and uh and poet uh and i remembered thinking in all of the different ones okay it's an inauguration this might be one of the most stressful times in my lifetime of thinking about you know where where the world is is standing right now and then i i saw amanda gorman's poem being recited and heard it and whoa uh, that the air was still, literally, it, it really was still, uh, and you could see uh, on on my on my computer screen that everybody was completely captivated. Um, she had drawn all of the air from outside um, into herself and onto the podium, and it and it was emotive and it was transcendent. And I don't know what else you can ask for art. Uh, but it did those things that I think we needed it to do at that moment, which is communicate and help us feel something that we didn't know necessarily how we could communicate or how we could share those feelings. Uh, and it was inspirational. And speaking of which, she is going to be reciting uh, the poem at the Super Bowl. And it is going to be about heroes and COVID. So I'm looking forward to... Our, our country really recognizing the power in her and in the medium and how it, you know, speaks to this larger conversation we've been having because the world has had a whole bunch of stuff going on. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> when you said we took a hiatus, I mean, when I think about where we started and, and where the season ended last year and where we're starting up again this year, it's, it's almost as if there were a, um, you, you want to fire the writers for, for the TV show. 
Cause yeah, you know, and I think, and like, we don't, one of the things I thought about this morning as I was, you know, um, you know, basically not preparing for this podcast was to think about, like, how could we even try to perform a recap of what's happened since the last time we actually did the podcast? That That's just too much for me to wrap my mind around. Um, but I, and maybe the thing to do is to fire the writers and start again, which is maybe kind of a poetic act in itself. I love that you, I mean, okay, so this is, I didn't know she was going to uh, perform at the Super Bowl, which, now think about that. I mean, how many superannuated rock stars and pop stars have actually played the Super Bowl and now we're going to have a poet? Um, That's a sea change in American culture. And that I mean, you know, as a you know, you know, uh, you know, as one of my sidelines, I I direct the Tufts Poetry Awards, and this is very exciting news for people who want who see poetry in in our future. Um, I also like that you use the word inspirational. I'm sure that was deliberate, um, and you know, with the etymology of that word, we are talking again about that, which which uh, makes it worth drawing breath, I suppose. Um, Super Bowl, wow! What what superannuated yeah. rocks? group is playing as well. You know, you know what? That? I wasn't paying attention. Wow. <laughs> I was you know. paying attention to the poet. Yeah. We've gotten to that place. You know, Lady Gaga or Amanda Gorman. I know. Or maybe we'll have them both. I mean, they were all, I mean, think about, you know, poetry as a version as a subset or, or it is uh, related to, I suppose, or adjacent to singing, but it's not singing. And that's actually... It'd be fun to get somebody on this podcast that could, you know, as we talk about sharing air and move into a creative space about what it means to sing or what it means to draw in breath and actually then produce it in that way or maybe play an instrument. You know what I thought was neat about this and the emergence of poetry is that it kind of speaks to what we can do right now. It's still very difficult to be creative in a very communal way with a lot of the media that are required to do so. So we've come up with a lot of interesting hacks. You know, there, there are ways to display art online, which turns out to have its advantages and disadvantages. There are, and we talked about this before, the YouTube curated songs, which mm-hmm. are very um, moving and remind me of, you know, the 1980s versions that, that we had seen with Quincy Jones. Oh, um, yeah. And, and we've had, I've seen like experimental film, like there have been a lot of experiments with arts and poetry was one that had been tied so that Journal of American Medical Association has now uh, a poetry publication that it publishes online that's related to usually people in the medical professions uh, communicating what they see or what they're, and it's not just related to a pandemic, it's related to everything. So that's come in on more of, the, of a niche group. But when it comes to the, the public writ large, I'd imagine that Amanda Gorman's recitation and performance weren't just a matter of her popularizing poetry. It's also a reflection of the innovation that we're using in creating public arts during a time when we need more means of creative expression. We're going to try different modalities still. And I think there's going Going to be an uptick in people realizing uh, the power of poetry, and it happened at the very beginning of the pandemic too, that people mm-hmm. were reciting, you know, doing poetry uh, composition and, and recitation. But I think there was a lull for a long time because we were all trying to figure out what our lives were like in this space and the importance of having routines and and loved ones and res- uh, resolve and resilience and all of the things that we have kind of been hitting on along the way and what we've been seeing in uh, more of the, the, the media and, and how we ought to be handling uh, the, the unrest and, and the unknown that's out there. But yeah. I think poetry is, is, is going to emerge a little bit more than it had been in the past. I suppose, I don't want to sound, this sounds a little like a cliche, but cliches begin in truth, right? That's why we say them all the time until we get tired of saying them. It is a healing art, right? I'm not, I know, actually, I know three doctors who write poetry, MDs who write poetry. And I don't know if they've published any in that journal, but one of the things that we think about a lot is that poetry doesn't waste words and it and it thinks in structure. And it makes sense to me that it has that that kind of a, a basic function that could actually, in some sense, address the needs for healing. It reminds us that we can take apart the way that we've built our world, which we build in words, and, and reassemble them. And maybe in some sense, take some, some liberties with the way that our ideas shape the way we see things. But 
that's I, I you know I and I think that you're right. What think about the setting for that that poem was also this kind of extraordinary set of. I mean, it was in some ways the the mall was actually artistically arranged because it couldn't have people in it, and mm-hmm. that, that very moving tribute to COVID that was there with the with the like the lanterns, all of that I think is an attempt to translate this unwanted experience into something that makes better sense to us and that in some sense helps us deal with it. One of the things that I thought was really noteworthy about my personal experience that resonated with me that made me realize how powerful this was is that leading up to the inauguration, I think my capacity to to really feel the way I had used to feel about things, my my antenna had become desensitized. Mm. And there had just been so much. And it was one of the things that we've dealt with for a good while now, not just the pandemic, but um, it's there's been a lot. And yeah. I think that we have limits to what we can we can take in. And so speaking on my own experience, um, you know, the week prior, or was it two weeks prior? It was, it was just before then there was there was this insurrection, you know, in, in the Capitol. <laughs> yes. And there had been so much stress and personal stressors and public stressors, and it, it was nonstop. Uh, so by the time the inauguration happened, I don't remember ever feeling or not feeling the way I felt during the the day before. All right. I remember is being like, I don't know what I can feel at this point. And what she did was reminded me that, okay, they're still in there. I've got feelings still. Yeah. And Aww. I was thankful for that. I was very grateful for that. Yeah. The the way that, you know, right. We were all kind of sobbing like ninnies and it was, it was a wonderful thing to think that we could, that I had a sense that there were people crying like into their screens, watching this all around uh, the world. And yeah, I you know the the idea that we've taken in too much that there's just too much to deal with. Um, one of the things that when you said let's let's talk about poetry, I was like, oh thank God because I'm I'm getting fatigued of reading the news um, mm-hmm. about vaccines and variants. But I think that I'm going to ask you to think a little bit about your more recent past because our podcast audience ought to know that today's special guest is actually you, Andy. You actually had a personal experience with COVID that is yours alone. And I am so grateful that you are willing to talk to me about it and to talk to us about it. So tell us a little bit about your month of December, if you will. Yeah. Thank you for having me on the show, Lorianne. I'm honored. Uh, The things you'll do to get on this show, really, Andy. That's right. No, I I appreciate um, the opportunity to talk about it. I think that itself is actually really healing, um, I did have COVID uh, in December. Uh, the first week of December, I had been exposed. And later, about four or five days, I started to develop the symptoms and went through the entire process, which has typically been described as a 10 to 14 day process. And in that, I've learned that it's uh, the timing and the way that I see something like the coronavirus is not confined to 10 or 14 days. It's a process and it is something that doesn't affect a single person. I have uh, had many people around who've been very supportive, but my experience was one where I went through it in isolation and I did that living alone and I did not have one of those experiences of a headache and then it was gone. It was pretty much every symptom for 14 days. And it was really challenging in that I didn't know what each day was going to bring, and I didn't have anybody else to worry about, not really. Uh, So everything that happened was just a conversation between me and spontaneity. And that was really And I hate spontaneity as a conversation partner. Can I ask you to circle back a little bit? I'm going to ask you, you know, tell me, tell me when, you know, if you're not comfortable with some of these questions, but I, I, I would actually like to hear how you experience symptoms. I actually want to unpack every single sentence that you just said, plus more. So if you don't mind, um, you said you had a headache. So tell me 
you know, as much as you would like, you know, what it feels like physically to be suffering from COVID. So I think everybody, first point is everybody has their own version of it. And that's a hundred percent true. So when someone says, well, I have a dry cough, but you have a wet cough, therefore you can't have it. That's not really true. I've known so many people now to have, who have contracted it, that there are people who are asymptomatic. There are people who are immediately experiencing really severe symptoms and that runs the, the entire gamut. So it, it can go everywhere. But for me, I felt something very different every day. So at the beginning, I had started off with fatigue, and then it moved into a sinus feeling like a headache, Mm -hmm. Uh, and it moved into a a slight cough. My cough was lasting like two days, and that was it. Uh, I went to GI upset, and then I migrated to the aches and pains, which was an interesting one, because when I'd say my back hurt so bad I couldn't sleep for the past couple nights... Um, you weren't exaggerating. No, but they didn't believe like, it was like, well, that's just aches and pains. Maybe everybody wanted to give me, uh, not just family, everybody that I spoke to wanted to give me an explanation of a, that's just, that's just, don't worry about it, which is fine. Mm-hmm. I understand what they were doing, but it was more like Ellen DeGeneres then announced that her COVID involved back pain right at the same time. So I got a flood of text messages and phone calls that said, okay, now you're validated in your having back pains because Ellen had them too. God, it's going to be uh, hard to get Ellen to come in on all these things that we that we end up feeling so that we can make sure that people believe us. I hear two yeah, things right. in this. No, Andy, I hear two. And one thing yeah. I want to tell you is I, I'm not sure how much this podcast can bear it, but one of the things that I find the most comforting in the world when I'm not feeling well is for somebody basically to just sit down with me back in the days we could do that and say, tell me everything you're feeling. Do not leave out a single detail. You know, tell me about your snuffy nose. Tell me about how bad your back hurts. Um, and I think you're right that people get scared. They don't want to hear it. They also don't want you to be scared. So they think they're being comforting. I'm guessing. I, I don't know who you were talking to, but I, I guess my, my, you know, I have a reaction, which is how annoying to have to wait for Ellen. You know, what if she doesn't get a back, <laughs> back pain, then what do we do? Like we have to have something she's had. But secondly, more, more to the point, were you frightened? Uh, yes, I'm in, I'm more on the anxious neurotic side of things anyway. And I think if you remember when we started our podcast, I was extraordinarily careful. I was resigned to say that there's no way that I'm going to get COVID, even though this is a pandemic. And even though yeah, I'm so proud of you, you were like so much, you were far, you made me feel cavalier. Yes. And most people I think were, I mean, if you went to get your mail, you were cavalier compared to me. I was so (laughs) careful. Yes. Uh, but the, you know, I, I was listening to our first podcast the other day to just get a sense of my tone in that space. And I was performing control and performing the sense of, of confidence that was really anxiety. And when I got it, it was an opportunity for me to face the anxiety, which is a very uncomfortable space for me to be, probably for many people. Uh, and the alone component was the difficult one. So mm-hmm. I tried doing what I think people would do to make themselves feel better is figure out what control I had um, and and up it, like really, really turn the volume up on that. So I created plans with people that I knew were in the area that were not comfortable plans to have. Uh, they were like, okay, I'm going to leave my door unlocked at night. Oh my God. And yeah. You don't live in that safe a place. Um, I mean... It was, it was the options. I, I also figured if, if somebody came breaking in, I'll be like, I've got COVID. And then they'd immediately run out. Uh, so <laughs> I figured I had a, a little safety in that. Um, but it was the, the I don't know what I can do, but I want to have a plan for everything. I have some friends who are physicians, so I spoke to them and they were very helpful. And my own physician was helpful. Um, I had friends who delivered food to me. I had people checking in with me, including family and friends and loved ones that were all, they were very much there for me when I needed, but it reminded me that everything we knew about how to handle this disease is based on a nuclear family model of it, of it being contracted. So it's, well, leave them in their room or in their part of the house. Right. Um, Put a tray outside the door, knock on it and run away. Yeah. 
yeah, these were not my issues. No. So I, I, I didn't have the stress of, of, I never worried about giving it to anybody, but I did have the stress of what if I don't wake up tomorrow morning, which sounds dramatic. And it, no, it I is don't think so. Dramatic. Cause it's about breathing. This is, you know, like, you know, yeah. one of the things that, that has been for me, one of the, one of the frightening aspects of it is the sense of, of having difficulty breathing. Um, yeah. And I don't know how much of that you felt, but also going to bed wondering if it would start in the middle of the night because there's also that you know the the entire uh, that etiology of um, is it called etiology where you know where the second week is worse than the first you're feeling pretty good and then things really go bad fast and on your own who's going to hear you call out right and so the second week I did have more difficulty breathing it wasn't terrible and I've now known more cases that are closer to home where people really did have bad times trying to breathe. Mine were uh, uncomfortable. Uh, and it was scary. It was very scary in those mm. spaces. So it was a lot of chamomile tea and just sitting there and a lot of meditation and a lot of pacing and a lot of figuring out what the next 24 hours is going to be like. Uh, okay. and, and it was also- Chamomile tea and I can't meditate. That just that, that actually sounds terrifying to me in a different way. Well, um, the, you know what? The, the crazy part of this time, Lorianne, was that in in- in the past, there is the, well, you can always go to the doctor. But in late December or in mid-late December at this time, this is when we had our spike. So mm -hmm. you didn't want to be one of the people who was turned away from a hospital after just being with a whole bunch of other sick people because right. of what it takes emotionally to get there. So it was, it was one of these, you know what, there's nothing to do about this just other than sit with it. And that's yeah. what it ended up being. Yeah. And also I think there's that whole, I mean, I don't know about you, but in the best of times, you know, when one does not have COVID and when one can go to the doctor, I have this condition that's called, you know, I feel really bad until I get to the doctor and then I feel pretty good. And then I feel like a fake. Mm -hmm. And and I think that that's actually, I mean, this is where I draw on sort of old, old, my old experience as a nurse, which is that it used to be, and I hope it's not like that anymore, but I bet it still is that it was really incumbent upon the potential patient to prove that they needed to be there. And we, we had a pretty well-developed, I mean, I'm ashamed to say it now, but we had a pretty well-developed notion of people who were just, it was all in their head and they were overreacting. And we had a pretty good, I think, overly developed notion, you know, ER nurses and other people of malingerers, right? And then they're bona fide people that need help, but they usually had to have at least two or three limbs torn off or, you know, have completely and actively stopped breathing. And so I always felt like it was, you know, it was kind of a, you know, there was kind of a tussle at the admittance stage of getting into medical care. Now that was in the battle days and I'm sure that things are better now, but right now medical care is being rationed in a new kind of way, right? You're not yep. allowed, you know, there's very few appointments that are allowed. You have to be sick enough to go in, but who knows what is sick enough? I mean, you had to wait to find out from Ellen DeGeneres if your back meant anything or not. You know, That's what if right. you go in and they turn you away and you've... You also are turned away thinking that you have perhaps overreacted. I think most of us worry that we are that something is actually psychosomatic or that we're or that we're bothering somebody, right? I mean, one of the one of the things that I can, you know, I remember, you know, quite which is actually I think quite a common experience for people that have just been in terrible accidents is that they're often just embarrassed. They're embarrassed to be in that situation. It's embarrassing to be uh, weak in front of other people, even if you're in a place that's supposed to take care of people who, who are not at their best. So I'm, I'm sitting here feeling wretched for you trying to make a decision day by day, whether or not you're sick enough to treat yourself as sick enough to do, to go to the next step. Right. Or is it just yeah. another cup of chamomile tea? I mean, so I was in the space of what would be considered a more mild case, mild case of this. It, I certainly felt everything. Um, and to me, it wasn't mild. But on the scale of, of uh, mild to moderate to severe, I was in the mild grouping. That being said, most people I know who've had it, had it much more mild than me, uh, which is the, you have a headache for two days or you feel a little off for a couple of days. And I'm not sure why they felt one way versus me. And one of the things that really bothered me was the trope that if you were more ill, it's because you had something that you hadn't done to take care of yourself, or you didn't hit the genetic lottery and you had a pre-existing condition that was outside of your control. And really, I didn't much fall into either of those cases. I was extraordinarily healthy going into this. Like, 
I was probably the healthiest I had been in a decade. Oh God, yeah, you drink chamomile tea for God's sake. Yeah, I didn't have anything stronger, and I, I <laughs> you know, the whiskey would have been more helpful in some ways. <laughs> it doesn't go well with chamomile. No, well, <laughs> it's a little ginger. I mean, a hot toddy might be the, yeah, the trick. Yeah, that's probably what I would have brought to your front door if I'd been able to to actually <laughs> deliver you anything. Um, that might have just been not the right thing to do at all. I want to go back to what you were saying in that space of embarrassment. I think I, I was, I've been paying more attention to the concept of gaslighting and trying to figure out of whether or not, or if it's even fair to talk about how that works in COVID because um, our entire healthcare system is stressed to beyond a breaking point right now. And it's kind of miraculous that um, it's managed to stay intact and that California didn't completely fall in on itself and we have a decline in cases. And it's really great. And, and the people that are in it, I think we owe a, a huge debt of gratitude for probably the rest of our lives. At the same time, when people are so overwrought, um, it's really hard to pay attention to the nuance of the power differential between the ill and the ones treating the ill. Mm. And when you, when you have that huge power differential, gaslighting is going to creep its way in. And so the I'm sure it's just kind of comments mm -hmm. or the come back when you have something real is the subtext to that um, is it runs, I think, a little bit more wild than it would in other situations. I do remember in medical education, the idea of the frequent flyer. The yep. person who would, it's a pejorative term that shows up in the, in the emergency department all the time. Um, and yeah, that's real. And they do need to save the beds and they do determine whether or not this is an emergency based on, you know, what, what the actual needs of everybody else at the hospital are as well. Uh, so it's, it's a tricky business and I wouldn't hold it against anyone, but from the perspective of somebody who's living in that space, all of those fears that you illustrated were very real of am I the crazy one? Um, and the answer is, in, in, upon reflection, absolutely not. But they don't know. And what has been communicated to them is rather sparse, and the world doesn't really know. And in the space of not knowing, uh, I think the whole kind of gaslighting thing became a lot more common, even though it was at a systemic level rather than any one individual. It's, well, if you didn't feel these seven things according to the survey you took, then you don't really have COVID, don't come and get a test. It's just not true. Right. It's just not true. Right. There's a lot of, in fact, you, you know, it's such a disparate, uh, you know, melange of, of potential symptoms. I also think that you, you put your finger on, I think, a it, I don't know if this is American or I don't know if this is like the, the last gasp of the Protestant work ethic or, you know, something crazy like that. But I do think that we hold people accountable for their health. And therefore, there's the, it's easy. I mean, behind this kind of sense that you're being gaslighted is, is an uneasy, very, you know, very sort of close to the surface feeling of shame that you've somehow, you know, failed that you haven't taken good care of yourself, that, you, that, you're, that you're too easy on yourself or you're too quick to think that you're sick, that you might not deserve this good care yet. You know, that there are people that are sicker and, um, and you're not one of those valid, authentic sick people. I, I, I think that that's actually a, a deeply embedded issue that is something that would be very, you know, it'd be worth our exploring with some of our guests in the future, which is where we think the responsibility for health lies. It has been one of the, one of the statements in the news over the, I don't know, something that I was reading, God only knows it's been a while since we've been together on this, Andy, but it said something like somebody was writing like an op-ed writer for the times and wrote, you know, at this point it's useless in the United States to do contact tracing because it, it's just everywhere. And and I realized that, you know, contract tracing is a way of finding blame for things. And, you know, it's now diffuse and we're and we're kind of taking on what we might have done. Or if we're really sick, does that mean um, that we were complicit in it in some way? As if sickness is a partnership that we take on unwisely or something. So I'm, I'm just, this idea of being gaslighted on top of everything else sounds it, you know, horrible. For, for for all of it, Lorianne, I would say that there are, again, everybody has a different experience with this and it really is individual. But somebody close to me came down with it just a couple of weeks ago and they were complaining to me about their interactions with loved ones that they had that were very frustrated. And I told them, look, um, most people, when they're talking to you, 
are doing this to make sense of their own fears in this world. This is what I learned from this. And so mm-hmm. when people ask me things like, well, do you, do you have your will figured out <laughs> as a conversation Please. or, or um, you know, what, what did you do? That like tell me tell me how close you are to to being really scared that you have to go to a hospital. There there were just a lot of things that they were meaningful and and I think an attempt at, at empathy, but they were really about their own fears and making sense of well, do I have it? Did I ever have it? What would I do in that situation? Well, I get and it. You're the person that they're now learning about this from in, you know, afterward, I feel much more comfortable talking about this, but in the process, it was a lot. And I think nobody means any harm by it, but I think there's something to be learned about uh, kind of a COVID empathy that might be a little different than other types of empathy we've cultivated Mm. because it's not as easy to have, the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes when you're terrified already with, with all of the defense mechanisms you've got going on. Right. And this is like the, the kind of, you know, this is kind of a, a communal terror. You know, I do think that when people that you know get this or get something like this, you realize for the first time people can get it, right? Yeah. It's mm-hmm. it's no longer abstract. The person that you've known for so many years or that you, you know, that you're dear friends with now has it. Okay, so here's proof that it actually is true, which doesn't mean that people were COVID deniers. It just means that you didn't know anybody. And then it is very easy. That there's a there's a kind of contagion in that, a fear that it could now happen to to you. And therefore, one of the things you try to do is explain it, explain it away, explain what it means, try to explain to you that it's not as bad as you think. I think that's a very human quality, which means because it's human, it also can be extremely obnoxious. But, you know, a few podcasts ago, we actually talked about John Donne, you know, who's who's, you know, sort of one of the most important things he ever said, or the one that we remember the most is, you know, human experience involves me because I'm part of mankind. And and I think that is the place where we have a communal experience of COVID that takes in both the sick and the non-sick. And weirdly enough, we place an enormous amount of responsibility on the sick to kind of uphold their side of that. You know, that, that what you're explaining in that toll is actually illustrated in this concept that there's a difference between an illness, a sickness, and a disease. Mm. And COVID, the D is a disease. Um, the illness is the social idea. And a disease is what, what the medical professions will say that you have based on a test result or the, mm-hmm. the series of symptoms that you have. The illness is what the sociocultural components are. So how other people perceive you. And that's what you get on the phone or that's what you get on Zoom or whatnot. Oh, you mm-hmm. look okay. Um, and then, which I got a lot. And then there was the <laughs> sickness, which is what I feel like. And so when it's described as I had COVID, it's I had the experience of coronavirus. And in that was COVID. And mm-hmm. in that was the perception. And in that was my feeling. And in that, and you know, to, to be very clear, it's not over. That experience is still ongoing. This is something, and it probably started back in February, March, when right. everybody was made aware of this. The experience of COVID is not something that's just related to the the disease itself. It's all of these things. Oh, you know, that's so that's so profound when you think about it. We've all been suffering, and that is not to actually diminish the the versions of suffering, but in in some ways, we've been in a collective illness since January or February. And at a particular point, it intersected with you in a personal way or a differently personal way. And I want to pick up on something else that I keep hearing around the edges of what you're talking about. You're actually in some ways describing this as being maybe post, let's see, I got this right, post sickness, but still in the midst of the illness. And there's still the definition of disease. And I'm curious if, you know, there's, you know, your 10 to 14 days, right? I'm going to guess that at the end of day 14, day 15, were you well and perfect again? Were we back to normal? Because I no. think there's a whole, I think that whole question, I asked that question partly because I absolutely want to hear what you, what happened with you, but also this is part of a larger collective conversation that we're having at the university level, at, at cultural level, at, at, you know, in, in, in the county and in, in, in this area and the region and the world, which is what will we be 
after we, after this is quote unquote over, when everybody's vaccinated, you know, my sense is that we are forever changed and that there are lingering effects that that's, you know, that's what I'm guessing for all of us. For you, how does that feel after day 15? It was not over and it, and oh. it is not over. I, I mostly, I know I'm on the mend um, and I'm about two months out now, but the process is really slow to not feel sick anymore. So this is one of those good examples. When you talked about the illness, the disease, so I don't have the disease anymore because uh, I tested negative for it. And so that's gone now. But I do have the sickness because I have things. I am not able to exercise, really. I can take walks. I have lingering pains. I think psychologically, I have a lot more fatigue. I do mm-hmm. have that brain fog at times. And mm-hmm. although all of those things have been improving, Good. and one of the things that's been very helpful for me to understand is that there are lots of people who've gone through this and this is not abnormal. It doesn't mean you're stuck with this. It might mean you're stuck with this, but it doesn't mean you're stuck with it. That after three months, they were totally better. Or after four months, they were totally better. Or they felt themselves as, as being fully there again. And I think I'm on that pathway to getting there. Again, I had something that was considered mild, but the experience to me, my sickness or whatever I want to call it, um, is it, it has a pretty large effect on on my life. So I can still do what I need to do, but I don't have the same uh, energy to get done what I need to get done. And it affects me and it affects the people I care about. Uh, and one of the really interesting points on the, on the gaslighting here and the story about the post-COVID or the long haul or the chronic. So when I was talking to my own physician about this a few weeks after, um, they said to me, uh, look, you're going to be fully yourself after two months. And if you're not, then probably it's a psychological issue. Oh. And, and which is total gaslighting, total gaslighting. And this was what everybody was experiencing who had had it for, you know, the many months since they had gotten it early on in the pandemic, especially like in New York, where this was a really common thing to get it in March or April. And it wasn't until those folks reached out to each other and started sharing their stories with each other that they realized this wasn't just in their heads. This was really happening. And when it was actual other medical professionals who had gotten ill, because it only took a matter of time before they were also coming down with, with the virus itself, then they found that there was a subpopulation of them that were just lingering longer. And the things that I described, but way more severe than, than what I described, that they actually put a name to it. And so they called it you know, post-COVID syndrome or post-COVID disorder, or they, they gave it a more medicalized name again to give it some kind of pull. But that's where the sickness didn't align with the illness and didn't align with the disease. Mm. And in that way, you get Again, experience encapsulates it, but what it actually feels like is even more of the, oh my gosh, I have to deal with this now too. And that that is uh, it's frustrating and it's difficult. The one thing that was really hard about it, Lorianne, was knowing, okay, I'd been through this. I had tried keeping each night demarcated of the 14 of like, okay, I got to get through, I got to get through, I got to get through. And then when you're out of the woods, which is great, um, like, okay, the world, open arms. But the world was certainly not open. And it was during the holidays. And nobody wants to see someone on day 15 of their COVID. Nobody does, including myself. I don't feel comfortable with that. So the isolation that happened from it, psychological isolation that happened from it, was perhaps the most debilitating thing that I experienced. Uh, It was very, very sobering to realize this is me. This is what I have to deal with. And, you know, I'm making it sound, I'm, I'm getting the, the sympathy from you, and I appreciate that. Uh, but really, it wasn't terrible from where I'm standing now. It was painful in the moment. But, wow, is that a moment for, for, for making a pivot? It really is one of those times when it's like, okay, well, what does this mean about my perspective on this? Well, I think, you know, I mean, uh, to begin with, I... What you heard is both sympathy, but also just a kind of an appreciation for speaking to a human condition, right? I mean, in the sense that there's a ton of metaphors here, which I will not insult your experience by starting to try to think through, you know, how when you think you're out of one, you know, things don't end 
and the the experience of one's humanity and one's vulnerability is not something that you know lasts for ten to fourteen days and then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Um, but I think so. I, I but I'm going to spare you that. I think that's something we can explore with poets and philosophers later on. Um, I think this idea that you're left to negotiate this amongst what I would think of as maybe a, a kind of a cohort of the of both people who understand, but also people who are frightened, people who want you to feel better and don't have good ways of doing this, um, people who, you know, are awkwardly trying to say the right thing and say all the wrong things at a time when you need to hear the, the right things, if anything at all. Reminds me that, you know, the entire way that we negotiate illness and, and um, you know, people at various stages of human life, all of which can encompass illness, uh, is in need of a serious overhaul. And when you now have new evidence about where we're falling short, um, it's a, you know, if you excuse me, it's a hell of a way to get to become an expert on sharing air, Andy, to actually have suffered through this. And I really appreciate your being willing to talk about it at such length and in such detail. I guess what I want to do before we have to close is um, you're, you're bringing us a different kind of expertise. I mean, we have interviewed a lot of people who have had a lot of insight about um, aspects of, I mean, sharing air has mostly been about COVID, let's face it. It's been about disease. It's been about how we live in community, how we live in isolation. Um, what we haven't done is actually brought somebody in who said, I, I had to be, I was isolated. I was ill. Um, that has not been you know, somebody that we've talked to. And now that I have you here, I suppose it, it might be a little bit um, cheeky of me to ask, but do you have advice for us, those of us who are either not yet sick, have stopped being sick, or are actually dealing with and encountering people every day on that on that spectrum? Um, yes. So I, first I want to make a disclaimer that not everybody was it was a burden. I had so much support from so many wonderful people in this process too. So it was a mix of both. Mm -hmm. But the advice that I'd give related to that is that everybody will have a COVID story, whether it's they never actually had the virus or they had the virus and had no symptoms, um, or you had a mild case and it turned out to change your life. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that I had fallen victim to was allowing others to to influence my COVID story more than they should have. Um, I was allowing a representation on a CNN story or on a Twitter feed or, or Ellen a, or Ellen or a medical professional um, tell me what this is going to be and what it's like and where I stopped trusting myself in that process because it's really about my experience and having the ability to have my own and own my own story in this space is really empowering when I take control of it. And so for anybody who does go through any component of this, um, to remember that, that this is actually your COVID story. This isn't one that was given to you. This is one that you are going to tell and retell. And it's it's not only a healing thing. It's it's a point for me of growth and respect of 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 something that I think I had performed a sense of of control and and confidence around before because I didn't know how to to work with it and I think it's been much healthier for me to be a little more realistic but understand that you know what it's still my story and that's much more powerful than performing one that seems like it would be more appealing for other people well that's that's actually a really nice take on the whole kind of attention that we've played to that we've been paying to storytelling uh, right now. Actually, in the in the academic world, and actually in in, in a number in the creative world, um, it makes me wonder uh, if you've got any. Like, I'm trying to think of who we'll have on the podcast. We need to have someone who comes and talks about storytelling. I think, um, and it, and we definitely, you know, need some some other experts. Uh, who come at this from some different angles than perhaps we thought about before. Um, so putting on your sort of learned podcast hat for a second, um, what subjects do you think 
lie adjacent to this to to the, to this overwhelming subject, right, of the world right now and what we're living in, that um, that you think we should be sort of reaching out to because we've got to start making plans for the rest of our podcast. That's right. So for this season, my hopes are, um, I mean, to go along this this line, this area falls into what's called narrative medicine, and that's the ability for patients to tell their stories mm -hmm. um, and the power that that holds and that the, both the therapeutic and informative. So me hearing from other people or if other people are willing to share their stories, that itself is really useful for people who are living through it rather than the reporter saying this otherwise healthy person suddenly fell ill and, you know, terrible consequence. Like <laughs> that kind of narrative is not narrative medicine. Narrative medicine comes from the person who can actually tell it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I think that, and one of the other big themes that we didn't hit a ton on today, but we should be going there soon because I think that's where the next version of this is. Um, it's actually around ecology and parasitology oh. and virology and microbiology because we're seeing these different variants that are springing up. And it reminded me of the problem in our entire analysis that we have one version of the COVID story based on an epidemiological prediction without keeping in mind that the virus has its own evolution and has its own evolutions every time mm -hmm. it infects one human being. And so we're going to have lots of variants and we're going to have lots more stories and those variants can affect people differently and they can spread differently. They could have different amounts of, of, um, uh, viremia and, 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 and severity. So we don't really have a single story to be told still. And so someone who understands the level of the ecosystem that this is taking place and I think would be really uh, a useful conversation in the co-evolution of us and a virus and policy and our leadership and our colleagues. And I mean, that kind of level of looking at it uh, I think will become a little bit more common. And I think if somebody can help us take apart the idea of a new normal, whether it be historically or sociologically or anthropologically and, and psychologically, like, no, this it's, it's nothing's normal. Right. Everything is in relation to everyone else for what we've got. So you're wow. not going back. You're not going back. You're just dealing with it. Oh yeah, I've yeah, I've even had to give up my Disneyland annual pass. This is this is something <laughs> I'm going to have to face. Um, but I, do, I mean, that's quite an ambitious program you have set out for us. And part of me really wishes that we could interview a virus, right? I mean, or like, <laughs> no, I mean it. These, yeah. you know, I mean, this is this is to speak, you know, to step back from this a bit, to think about, you know, it itself is a version of a living thing trying to survive, right? So it, you know, it almost sounds like the stuff of science fiction, but um, I really think that we should, uh, I mean, I, th I think that, that, that ecology is the next place to go. I mean, in some ways you sketched that out already. I mean, the whole idea that we've actually, all of us been in this COVID world suffering in various ways, some more than others since February reminds me that we have created this ecology and this is our ecology of, um, of interdependence um, and isolation, uh, the thing that we actually, uh, in some sense, designed this podcast to speak to. Um, and and you know, I, I want to add, oh, please. I want to add, it's not just suffering, though. There is thriving, and that's worth mentioning, too. It's, I, I don't want to talk about it theoretically so much. I think that there, it's, it's worth pointing out, or at least having that, that kind of gratitude exercise, that we are incorporating some component of thriving into what we're doing as well. Oh, that's and, good to remember. Yeah, you're right. And, yeah, it's and, not all terrible. No. And in fact, we have learned a lot, I mean, just in terms of outreach. And for example, you know, if it weren't for this, uh, being all sent home to work from home, you and I might not have done this podcast. Um, and this is, this has been, um, this is where at least one little area of thriving for me, I, you know, I love the word thrive, except if you were actually a member of Kaiser Permanente, you get a little tired of it. Um, yeah, right. because it's, they've actually and branded it in certain ways, but, but I like it, but I've always liked it's kind of all purposeness, like all kinds of things can thrive, you know, like the, the mold that's on my old food in the back of the refrigerator is, is doing its version of thriving while I'm trying to figure out how to throw it out. <laughs> And, um, and I think, you know, I think that's another thing to do with it. It's not, it's not being a Pollyanna to say, let us see what we've learned and see how this has improved our situation. Um, and I promise you that we will do that in the future. Um, 
but I want to thank you. Um, you were an exemplary guest, um, and you didn't get to be the podcast co-host for a little while, and I missed you as that, but I couldn't figure out how to make you ask yourself your own questions. So I, I truly uh, want to thank you, Andy. This was very generous of you, and uh, I think it is both um, a serious but in many ways, uh, uh, you know, a kind of in inspiring way to start our next uh, season of the podcast. So that's well, my you, sort of final words. I don't have any, any poetry today for you, except that I want you to thrive. I appreciate that, Laurieanne, and I am actually, and I'm grateful for what this has also given me. So I don't want to leave it on, on, a, on a negative side. I think that I have co-evolved with this too, and I'm excited to see where this takes me. I wanted to ask if I could read a poem. Oh, uh, yes, please. There was one I found from Jane Hirschfield that she wrote right when this started. Um, and it was funny because it really reminded me of when I was going through COVID itself. They were written under very different pretenses, but they resonated together, I think. So I'd like to read it. So here's today when I could do nothing. Today, when I could do nothing, I saved an ant. It must have come in with the morning paper still being delivered to those who shelter in place. A morning paper is still an essential service. I'm not an essential service. I have coffee and books, time, a garden, silence enough to fill cisterns. It must have first walked the morning paper as if loosened ink taking the shape of an ant. Then across the laptop computer, warm, then onto the back of a cushion. Small black ant, alone, crossing a navy cushion, moving steadily because that is what it could do. Set outside in the sun, it could not have found again its nest. What then did I save? It did not move as if it was frightened, even while walking my hand, which moved it through swiftness and air. Ant, alone, without companions, whose ant heart I could not fathom. How is your life? I wanted to ask. I lifted it, took it outside. The first day when I could do nothing, contribute nothing, beyond staying distant from my own kind, I did this. Man, I love that. That's wonderful. Thank you, Andy. You are essential to me. And uh, we will meet again in a week. Uh, with an exciting guest, but nobody that is essential as you are right now. So thank you so much. And I will now tell you goodbye and say to all of our podcast audience, we'll see you next week. Thank you, Lorianne. Thank you everyone for listening. Bye-bye now. <laughs>